Many of you have known struggles this week, amen? But the massive storm that resulted in many of you having no power, some of you still have no power. You've had to deal with heat, loss of food, your reserves in the freezer are now in the garbage, you have no air conditioning, here's where suffering takes place. No CPAPs for your snoring mates. No blow dryers. Limited cell phone coverage. Unrecharged phones. No electric for microwaves or stoves. And for some of you, no electricity for coffee makers. How have you made it? I don't know. All of this on top of COVID-19. All of this. Some of you have struggled greatly due to the compounding of all these issues. But the power one day will return. One day COVID will eventually be done with. But there's another struggle that I want to talk about today. It is our struggle with sin. Does anyone here struggle with sin? Okay, I see hands all over the place. We don't often talk about it. We, we try to cover that. We don't like to admit that we're fallible and we struggle on a daily basis with doing wrong things. For many, your propensity to sin frustrates you. You become disenfranchised disheartened as you, saw, as you struggle and you fall again to temptation. Some of you have painted a self-portrait of bleak futility when you look over certain areas of your life. And I've talked with many of you because some of you have given up. Some of you have said in your heart of hearts, I cannot change. I will be struggling with sin the rest of my life, so why make the effort now? And you just let sin have its way. You feel utterly hopeless. Can I tell you this morning that God understands that struggle and he has done something to bring much needed hope to each of our lives this morning. So turn with me to Romans chapter 7 starting at verse 15. As I have studied this passage for this message this morning, I have framed it into a series of questions that we often ask ourselves as we deal with this area called sin. Now, what's the background? This is part of Romans 6, 7, and 8. And these three chapters explore our union with Christ. In chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, which we'll look at part of it today, it is Paul's testimony of his struggle as a believer within dwelling sin. 
Now, why is Romans 7 so important? Because it'd be just easier to go right to chapter 8, verse 1. But I think Romans 7 needs to be given you as a backdrop to what we're going to study. Why? I have uh, five reasons for Romans 7. One, our struggle with sin is not just specific sins, but our basic human nature is flawed. We are by nature children of wrath. Number two, chapter 7 shows us that our human nature is essentially bad. You don't hear that in the world. You say people are essentially good. That's false. People are essentially bad. Matter of fact, if you look inside, all of us, apart from Christ, are essentially wicked. Number three, Romans 7, so important because our growing sanctification is not due to obeying laws and rules. Our sanctification comes apart from rules. Matter of fact, it's an act of grace. Number four, Romans 7 is so important because doing right requires more than determining to do it. How many of you had good intentions? I'm going to do this today. And you get to the end of the day and you say, where did the day go? Why didn't I accomplish that? Why didn't I make that phone call or write that letter or make that email? Why didn't I bless that person? Why didn't I spend more time in the Word today or in prayer? We all struggle. The last reason why chapter 7 is so important is because it provides a stark backdrop to chapter 8. When you see chapter 7 and how bleak things are, and all of a sudden in chapter 8, it just turns around. So starting in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do... What I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The first question for your outline, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And as we go through chapter 7, what I want you to see how many times personal pronouns are used. Now, I know you, some of you haven't been in school recently. Personal pronouns, I, me, my, myself. Between verse 15 and verse 25, personal pronouns occur 39 times in just a few 
11 verses. This is a very personal section for Paul. Paul practiced what he hated. He failed to overcome evil. And when I think of the Apostle Paul, it's like he is the Christian of Christians. Amen? If anyone knew theology, if anyone understood what it was to follow Jesus, it should be Paul. And Paul says, I don't understand my own actions. The things I want to do, I can't. And the things that I don't want to do, I abhor. I want to abstain from. I end up falling into it. See, Paul is not avoiding personal responsibility, and nor should we. But there is a conflict between his desires and the sin within him, just like us. Amen? Let's get real. I don't know how many times as a little child I did something wrong and my dad or my mom would pull me aside before discipline was enacted and they would ask me, Brian, why did you do that? You know what my answer was? I don't know. I don't know. I'm now a grown adult. Why do I do some of the things I abhor? I don't know. Well, I do know. It's the sin nature that's part of me. And the bottom line is, self-determination does not work. I don't care how much I say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. Reminds me of the, the man who was dealing with a problem with eating donuts. And so he drove past the donut shop and he said to himself, I will only stop if there is a parking spot in front of the store. He came to work later on with a box of donuts. And they said, I thought you were trying to cut back. He said, well, after the seventh time of circling the block, the parking spot finally opened. Isn't that like us? We struggle. Verses 18 to 23, here's the question. Why am I so conflicted? Why am I so conflicted? Let me read the verses for you. For I know, this is Paul speaking, and listen to the personal pronouns. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I had the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. See, in verses 18 to 21, Paul admits he has a failure to do the desired good. He has a failure to accomplish good. And verse 18 teaches us very clearly that each of us are totally depraved sinners. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I am totally depraved. Totally. And I don't care how long you, in college, we used to call it navel-gazing. Now you remember those words. Introspection. I don't care how much you introspect and look into yourself, it's not going to improve. The reality is the conflict between our two natures rages on. And all of our good intentions often end in failure. In verses 22 to 23, let me read those for you. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Because of regeneration, because of the Spirit's supernatural work in my life, a believer now has two natures or two capacities for loving spiritual truth but still having a sin nature. The indwelling principle of sin is constantly mounting a military campaign against my new nature in Christ. It is trying to gain victory and control over my actions as a believer. And it happens every day. Chuck Swindoll said this, all of us are chronically addicted to sin. Doesn't that just hit home? All of us are chronically addicted to sin. Long after we are saved, our bodies crave that which gave us short-term pleasure and caused us long-term anguish. And the pull to indulge the craving for sin will always be part of our lives, at least until we're freed from the body of this death. We have a natural rebelliousness against God's moral law. Pretty bleak, amen? Okay, there's one amen. It's bleak. So the next question is, found in verses 24 and 25, who will 
deliver me? Who will deliver me? Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Stop right there. Do you hear Paul at this verse just groaning? So let's groan together. Do you you enjoy sitting in your life? No, let's groan. Groan. Come on. Grown. You, you don't like sin. You want to live for Christ. But I'm trapped. In the message paraphrase, it says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? That was his paraphrase of this verse. I loved it. Paul was helpless to resolve his own problem, and so are we. Our experiences repeated multiple defeats and frustration. One author said, Paul feels like he has a decomposing body strapped to his back. He needs help from an outside source. But notice verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, the solution to this dilemma is not escaping temptation. It is victory over it. Paul was looking for the final triumph of Jesus Christ for his people. We will one day join our resurrected Lord for all eternity with a new body. And we will be free from sin forever. Yes. That's the backdrop. Now we come to chapter 8. Verses 1 to 11. To fill in the blank in your outline... Are we to spend our entire lives defeated by sin? Isn't that the question we're asking ourselves? And that question can be broken down into two sub-questions. Number one, must I spend this whole life frustrated by ongoing defeats to indwelling sin? And the answer is yes. frustrated. Years ago, we brought in a speaker, John Nieder, who brought his father-in-law with him. His father-in-law was much older than John. And one day, John had asked his father-in-law, at what point do you stop battling with lust in your life, my father-in-law? 
And he said, I don't know. It's still active in my life. The battle. The battle, not the failure. The battle. And will we spend the whole life frustrated by battling with sin? Yes. But the second sub-question is, is there power provided to achieve victory? And the answer is yes. Yes. See, until death or translation, we will all face conflicts between our new spiritual nature and our old sin nature. It will be at war. So in this battle, the first question in chapter 8 is, what about our past? What about our past? Look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, as we get into chapter 8, I want you to notice personal pronouns minimize. They were all over chapter 7. And what we're going to see in chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit becomes the dominant person that the passages talk about. The first thing we learn in chapter 8, verse 1, there are no conditions but a new position. There are no conditions attached to our freedom in Christ, no conditions attached to to freedom from condemnation because grace writes an unconditional guarantee for our salvation. And he says in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I will tell you something personal. That was the very first verse I ever memorized as a new believer. And I needed it. I needed to know where I stood with the Savior. And this one verse made it very clear. This one verse says there's freedom from condemnation. I put in your notes in the overflow a quote. It says, No condemnation is different from freedom from judgment. No condemnation means that God will never condemn us to an eternity separated from Himself for our sins. The reason that the believer is in Christ Jesus. The Savior has suffered the consequences of our sins as our substitute. He will experience no condemnation, and we, as those who represent, will not either. Note the absolute force of this great promise. We are eternally secure in Christ. 
So no condemnation. And that means, now think about this, no divine condemnation from God, no condemnation, but secondly, no self-condemnation is warranted. If God does not condemn me, why do I put myself in the place of God and say, oh, Brian, you blew it again? There should be no condemnation if there's not from God. The very righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to my account. His righteousness is now mine and yours in Christ. Chuck Swindoll says there are three crucial truths that come out of just these first four verses. Number one, we are eternally secure. Verse one, we are eternally secure. Now as well as when we face final judgment, God has officially declared our justification, and he never, now think about this, he never goes back on his word. Amen? You are declared righteous in Christ. Secondly, we are internally free. Verse 2. We are internally free from the control of sin. Now as well as when we get to heaven, the spirit of life has set us free. That means when sin comes knocking at my door, I have now the power in the Holy Spirit to say no. Is that power resonant within me without the Holy Spirit? The answer is no. Thirdly, we are positionally righteous. Positionally righteous. Now, as when we stand before our heavenly judge, God accomplished this on behalf, our behalf, through his Son. How can I explain this? There is a law called the law of gravity. If I step off of this platform, where will I go? Down. Why? Because of gravity. What happens if I flap my arms? Will I make it a little further if I flap my arms? What happens if someone says, I don't believe in the laws of nature, and I go to a 10-story building, and I get to the roof, and I walk off the roof? What will happen? I will die. Well, then explain a 747 in the air, folks. Ah, it's the law of aerodynamics. 
See, gravity is true for everything and everyone, except there is another law that can supersede it. The law of aerodynamics. The law of sin and death is the law of gravity for all of us. But the law of the Spirit transcends sin and death. And I can decide, am I going to allow gravity to rule over me or am I going to allow aerodynamics to rule over me? That's a choice. Chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The question that I had to ask myself as I read those verses is, to whom will, will we yield control? To whom will we yield control? And notice as I read those verses, the conflict begins in our minds. It's not out there, it's right here. And this process involves a choice on the part of the believer. I have to choose not just once a year, not just once a month, not even once a day. Am I going to follow the Spirit or am I going to follow my flesh? The Spirit or the flesh? Take your pick. How you live will be determined by what you choose. In verse 7, he talks about the flesh in detail. Number one, it's hostile to God. Secondly, it does not submit to God's law. That's present tense. It is not submitting. It wants it its own way. How many times have you and I prayed to say, God, I'm in this situation. Now let me tell you what I think you should do to fix it. And we make a suggestion rather forcefully. God has to laugh. And sometimes I think he breaks us purposely to say, you need to follow my will, not yours. I'm not here to bless your will, Brian. I'm here to carry out my will in your life. The flesh cannot please God. 
Who will we yield control to? The flesh or the spirit? Will you yield to the spirit and his work within you as he desires to build holiness into your life? Simple illustration. And I know our new technology makes us a little bit antiquated. So we're not talking about picture-in-picture, folks, or multiple screens. But if you're at home and you're turning on the television, you have to choose, am I watching Channel 4 or Channel 8? You cannot choose both. Why do I say that? Either we're going to choose our flesh or we're going to choose the Spirit. The flesh or the Spirit. Take your pick. Which will it be? Verses 9 to 11. Where is this new power coming from? Where is this new power coming from? Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ, and those if statements are to be translated since. It's a first-class condition. But since Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's reality. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. It's not a second work of grace. It's not something I have to seek after. The moment I received Christ as my Savior, the Spirit of God took resonance in my life and in yours. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life and spiritual power. It also says in the text, Not only is the Holy Spirit in you, it also says in verse 10 that Christ is in you. God promises spiritual resurrection life now in each believer's mortal body and physical resurrection in the future. What would you think of me is I came to church a little late. I mean, it's right at the start of service, and you see me coming in the back of the north lot, and I am pushing my big red truck. Pushing it. And say, Pastor, you should have put gas in it. And I said, oh, no, no. It is fully gassed up. Well, Pastor, then... You have the key? Yes, I have the key. Then why don't you get in it and start it up and drive it here? 
That's an option? You would think I had been out in the sun way too long. Amen? How many of you are pushing your spiritual life in your own power? When the Spirit of God, who resident within you, wishes to bring power to your spiritual life so you can do spiritual things for the glory of God. <coughs> Excuse me. So what does this mean for us? I have uh, four things. Number one, sin is no longer our master. Amen? Hear that clearly. Sin is no longer our master. It has been broken. But sin is a powerful adversary. If we don't take sin seriously, we tend to fall into it. But on the flip side, if we don't take victory seriously, we fail to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to each of us to have victory over sin. So the question for you this morning, have you fallen into either extreme? Not taking sin seriously or, or, or just giving up and not taking victory seriously? Evaluate your own life. Second truth. From chapter 7 of Romans, any self-improvement carried out in the energy of the flesh is worthless. Worthless. Are you so worn out trying to be like Jesus in your own strength? Give it up. The Spirit has been given to us to produce the life of Christ in us now. Number three, put your seatbelts on. God never demanded perfection. God never demanded perfection. We are saved by grace, amen? And we are not sanctified by our own efforts. We are sanctified by grace, His grace. Only God can purify our souls. Amen? I don't care how much you work at it. It is a divine work that only can be done by God. And maybe you need to fall back on His grace to see things happen again. What should be our response to these, these verses that we looked at this morning? Get to know Jesus better every day. 
the disciplines that we are taught to practice, prayer and fasting and scripture reading, witnessing, these are not meant as checkboxes spiritually. These disciplines are meant to deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ. To fall in love with Him more. I don't serve my wife for all these years so I get a gold star at the end of the day. It doesn't hurt. But it's to get to know her better. Jesus wants you to get to know him better. And if you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ as your Savior from sin, this is the morning. This is where it starts with an initial relationship with the Savior of the world. Because none of this is true if you do not have the Spirit of God in your life. You are lost, you are sinful, and you have no hope apart from Christ. The struggle of the normal Christian life sometimes can be very defeating. Amen? But it's worth the struggle. It's worth the battle. It's worth saying, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing, and I'm struggling, so please release your spirit in my life to do what you need to do. Let's pray.